Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Dr. Sima Yasmin, author of the book, Muslim Women Are Everything, Stereotype-Shattering Stories of Courage, Inspiration, and Adventure. The book profiles more than 40 Muslim women from across history and pushes you to rethink what you may have thought it means to be a Muslim woman. In the book, you'll meet women who are authors, dancers, rockers, politicians, and athletes, women who are creating history and reimagining the future, and women who are defying categorization and are emblematic of the diversity, strength, and influence of Muslim women across the world. Each profile is accompanied with just breathtaking illustrations by the artist Famila Azim. We have links in the show notes to that. Dr. Yasmin herself is a Muslim woman who does everything. She is a medical doctor, poet, professor, journalist. In addition to her writing, she currently teaches science journalism at Stanford. Muslim Women Are Everything is her second book. I spoke with Dr. Yasmin in December 2020 and asked her where she got the inspiration for her book. Yeah, so it was a couple of years ago, and I was seeing on social media lots of so-called celebrations of Muslim women who were achieving incredible things like Olympic medals and business awards and all of these things. But when institutions and corporations were celebrating these women, there was an element of shock and surprise that Muslim women were athletes or Muslim women were entrepreneurs or that Muslim women were astronauts. And I was thinking, what do these people think we are? And what do they think that we can and can't do? And so I wrote an angry tweet and an editor saw it and said, would you turn this into an essay? And I said, absolutely not. Because I didn't want to write another one of those, oh, we're just like you, we bleed just like you kind of essays where we have to demonstrate our humanity. Sure. I didn't want to pass up an opportunity. So what I did instead was I wrote a prose poem, a very tongue in cheek prose poem about Muslim women, fictional, doing such incredible things as taking a nap or <laughs> reading a book yeah. or doing open heart surgery. And the, this incredible painter, Fahmida Azim, illustrated this prose poem and it really took off. It got some people very angry and annoyed. They felt like Muslim women were getting too much attention. So there was all this talk about it. And off of that, we, Fahmida and I got a book deal with HarperCollins to create a beautifully illustrated book about real life Muslim women who are astronauts and ballerinas and chefs and Formula One race car drivers, 
just doing incredible things despite all the challenges put in their way. Yeah, I mean, you you describe it perfectly. Just a beautifully illustrated book, and and your profiles as well. Just uh, just uh, really well done. I wonder how did you come about um, finding the people to profile in the book. It was so difficult, not because it's hard to find women who are incredible, because there's so many women. Sure. And to this day, I like kick myself. I'm like, oh, I wish we had put this woman in. And I, I wish we had put this incredible woman who's a prison abolitionist in and this other woman who's a Muslim woman surfer. Um, but it was also just about making sure that the women in the book represented the breadth of what it means to be a Muslim woman. I wanted to make sure that not all of the Muslim women were from the West and they weren't all wearing hijab or not all not wearing hijab. And I didn't want them all to be Sunni or all to be Shia. So it was also about trying to have that balance. And the book is really fun in that it celebrates Muslim women who are alive right now, but also Muslim women from history, Muslim women from around the world, women who did incredible things in their 50s and 60s and others who are doing incredible things in their teenage years. So it really just speaks to the fact that we're not a monolith. We can do so many things and we live all around the world and have really different lives and experiences. Yeah, I really was impressed that you opened the book with profiles of women rockers. Um, was that intentional? Everything is intentional. So it was very fun to write about Muslim women who are rock stars and artists and creative and singing. And also, you know, to tell the audience whether you're a Muslim woman picking this up or you're someone who doesn't have much familiarity with Islam to kind of say there's debate among Muslims about the appropriateness of music. You know, there are some who are very strict, including in my family, who don't believe that music is permissible. And there are others who think it's an amazing way to tell stories and connect with other people around the world. And so it was fun to start off with these Muslim women, including Giselle Maria Rocha, who's a Brazilian woman who wears full niqab and burqa and is the lead thrash metal guitarist for her band in Brazil. So it was really, it was really fun to demonstrate that creativity and the rock star element. Who, who is this book for? Who did you write this for? It really is a love letter to Muslim women from myself and Fahmida, but we also are very aware of the statistics of just how few people in the US and other parts of the world, how few people have exposure to Muslim people in their lives. And therefore, what they know of us is what they read in the press. And there's been so many studies and analyses of newspapers like the New York Times and others that really misrepresent Islam and misrepresent Muslims so that what Muslims so that what you see is investigations around terrorism or debates about hijab and burqa and niqab and we are so much more than those two topics so it's also beautifully illustrated because it's supposed to be an entry point for people who don't know muslims don't have muslim friends and want to learn some more about what we're like and how diverse we are within the group of muslim women Sure. Yeah. You write in the book on Masoon Zaida, a comedian with cerebral palsy, you say, representation matters. Seeing people who look like you, sound like you, come from the same place as you makes dreams feel possible. Can you talk about that? Representation makes such a big difference. If we show little girls, the Maysoons of the world and the Zara Nurbakashis and all these women in there, 
I think once girls see what is possible, then they can dream bigger and then they know that they can achieve these wild and absurd dreams. It was really important for me to include Muslim women comics and comedians in the book because otherwise I think it can be that, oh, when, when there's a debate about Islam and about Muslim women, it's about modesty and it's about Sharia law and it's about violence. And it's like, we are so much more than that. So we more. love to laugh. We are so hilarious. These are amazing <laughs> comedians and comics from the US, from France, from North Africa, from um, Malaysia and Indonesia that I want people to be exposed to because I think comedy is so much about truth telling, perhaps more than any other medium. And these women are bringing their full selves, their full lives. They're even bringing quite taboo topics to their audiences. And I think that's so brave and innovative and it's also about joy like we're, we're really funny and we love to laugh um, and so I wanted to celebrate that in the book too sure it seems like many people in the book struggled with uh, kind of an outdated conservative or misogynistic view of Islam versus who they were as a person it seemed like that was a central theme for a lot of people in in the book yeah, and also this idea that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. So, for example, say you choose to wear hijab, there are people who will be like, well, that's overly religious. You might even live in a country that chooses to legislate against your choice to wear hijab. And if you don't, there are people perhaps from your own community who are like, you're not pious enough, you're not modest enough. So it's really challenging sometimes because whether it's imams or whether it's brothers, cousins, fathers, or whether it's actual policymakers who are trying to police our bodies and make these decisions for us. And so we have a section in the book that's about all the different ways that Muslim women choose to cover or not choose to cover. You know, it's such a deeply personal choice, and yet it's also a political one. So we definitely wanted to explore that as well. Do you think the stereotypes or tropes of Muslim women are worse within Islam or from outside of Islam? Well, you mean within our communities? Yeah, exactly. The, the Muslim community or outside the Muslim community? I think it's a double whammy. I think it can be alienating to be outside of your community because of the, the stereotypes that are kind of leveled against you. It can also be quite liberating to be outside of your community because you're free of some of that judgment. But then there's also such a strength and a sense of solidarity and security from being within a community that accepts you for all of the things you are, that understands you might wear a hijab one day and then you may not the next day. So I think it's really variable in the kind of environment you're in, but I hope that we are fostering communities that are accepting of people. You know, when I was at medical school at Cambridge University in the UK, I stayed away from the Islamic society because I thought, I don't wear hijab anymore. I used to, but I wasn't wearing it at that point. And I thought, they're going to judge me. They're going to say this and that. They must all pray five times a day and they're going to have things to say about me. When I eventually did go to one event, I absolutely fell in love with that group because they many were quite pious, but they were the least judgmental Muslims I'd ever met. And they became many of them lifelong friends. So I think it is really variable. But within this book, within Muslim Women Are Everything, I think there are women side by side who wouldn't agree with each other, right? Again, we're not a monolith. Right. So I also wanted to show that breadth of ideology. I mean, there's a woman in there that's a militarist. She's a, a warmonger. And that doesn't necessarily align with my ideals or my beliefs about peace. But I still think it's incredible to learn about her history and to learn about the way that she lived her life. You also write in the book that Muslim women are leading the charge when it comes to the progression of our ummah, of our community. Can you talk about that? 
Absolutely. So there's this whole concept um, of Generation M, which I'm skeptical about because it came about from marketing folks and from PR companies who are like, holy crap, these Muslims are spending billions of dollars every year on so-called like halal products, whether it's literally like halal food or whether it's halal sex toys, halal travel, halal high fashion, halal non-alcoholic beers. There's a lot of money to be made from leveraging the Muslim dollar. And Generation M is this marketing term that's applied to young Muslims who have um, disposable income, but who interestingly, in comparison to their peers from other faiths, do not see a distinction between faith and modernity. Very much believe, and I believe this too, that those two can align. And at the head, at the helm of Generation M is young Muslim women who are better educated and doing better within the economy and within their careers than Muslim men. So I think that's really something to watch out for. And the marketers are certainly looking at us, but I think we need to look within ourselves also to see how we can elevate that. Um, and it's going to be very, very interesting to watch, I think, over the next few years to see how Generation M evolves um, and what opportunities that brings. Um, you write in the book um, on a session on Ilhan Omar um, that Muslim women shake things up. Personal victories, though, are international triumphs that reverberate through the Ummah. We are tired of firsts, done with tokenisms, and ready for our sisters to rise with us. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think it can be bittersweet when you're told, oh, look, we have the first Muslim woman congressperson or first Muslim woman senator. And you're like, that's amazing. But it's 2020. Like, why has it taken us this long? Why does it have to be so arduous a journey for us? And so I think with each of us that breaks down those barriers, and I see this over and over again, whether it's talking to Zara, the comedian, or looking at Ilhan and Rashida Tlaib, it's not enough for us as individuals to break through a barrier. It's like climbing the ladder and then pulling people up with you. So I'm really inspired by these women for their incredible courage, their persistence. They haven't given up in the face of so many slammed doors, but I'm even more inspired by their generosity of spirit and them saying, yeah, I might be the first, this first Muslim woman astronaut, first Muslim woman ballerina. That's not good enough. Like it's not good enough unless these fields, these different disciplines truly reflect the world that we live in. And the world that we live in has about a billion women who identify as Muslim, you know, and, and vastly growing. And so until that representation exists in politics, the media, medicine, education, you name it, choreography, um, we're going to have to keep fighting, keep fighting for representation and for proper inclusion. I want to just change gears a little bit and learn a, a more about your upbringing. You grew up um, in the UK and in London or outside of London. Could you tell me a little bit about your upbringing? Yes, yeah, so I was born in the Midlands to immigrant parents, and then I grew up in London, and I kind of grew up between two worlds, living some years with my family in this very insular, conservative Muslim community, and then other years with my mother, who'd left to go to university, and then was living in London, where I mostly grew up. So I got to see these very diverse worlds of, in one case, in my, for example, in my family, in my community, women wear hijab, many wear niqab and do full further. And then in my mum's world, where I would go, I would meet Muslims who were queer, Muslims who were comedians, Muslims who loved music, Muslims who had dogs, all of those things were so wild to me as a young girl. So I was thinking, but I've been told all these things are not allowed. 
So very early on, I kind of saw that diversity of, oh, you can be Muslim and look like this, and you can be Muslim and look like that. And I grew up in a Sunni community and then, you know, soon after became exposed to Muslims of different backgrounds. But that really, I think, informed my worldview of Islam and really showed me that diversity within the Muslim community. I mean, there's like nearly two billion of us. You can't try and pin us down to one thing, one subject area, one visual even. And so that was deliberate with the cover of Muslim Women Are Everything, because initially we were looking at among the amazing, stunning portraits that Fahmida painted of every single woman who's in the book, we're thinking of lifting one of the gorgeous ones, really striking ones out and putting them on the cover. And then we're like, but we can't do that because we're saying Muslim women are everything. Why would we single out one woman to represent all of us? And so that's why the cover is like a collage of that. But that definitely goes back to my childhood, the way I was raised, the way that I saw that Muslims can be many, many things and that, you know, we're we're very much human. And so therefore we evolve over time too. I used to wear hijab. I don't anymore. Who knows if I will again in the future, like all of those things are up for discussion. We'll have more with my conversation with Dr. Seema Yasmin, author of Muslim Women Are Everything, up after the break. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. Today, we're talking to Dr. Seema Yasmin, author of Muslim Women Are Everything. Though she lives in the States now, Dr. Yasmin was born and raised in the UK. As the daughter of immigrants, she bounced around between a very insular, traditional paternal family in the English Midlands and her mom's university world in London. I asked her about her relationship with her mother and her influence on her life. So my mom had an arranged marriage very early when she was 17, and then she got pregnant with me when she was 19. And she didn't have much agency or much voice as a young person. She had a very unhappy marriage. And in my early years, she decided that she did not want this cycle of oppression to repeat for her baby girl. And so she made this very brave decision to leave our insular community in the Midlands and go to university. And she was in many ways disowned for that decision because she left my father, she left the community behind, and she was going to do a thing, get an education that wasn't supported by the community. That's not what women did. And we're talking about the 80s in the UK, so it's not that long ago that divorce was taboo and a woman leaving the home was taboo and a woman going to get an education was very much taboo. And so she did that, and I was about five, and she took me with her to university, and we lived in a dorm together for a while. And then later I went back to live in the community because she wanted me to still be a part of the family, even though there was much criticism of her and her decisions. She wanted me to go to Madrasa and she wanted me to learn the languages that we speak at home and to be immersed in that community, which we talk about now. I'm like, why, why did you make such efforts to build bridges with people that said horrible things about you and said horrible things about you to me, you know, to your child? I was a young girl at the time. But my mom kind of didn't want to throw all of that away. And so she worked really hard to build that connection again with our family. And so we are all now very close, even though we are very different. You know, my cousins chose to have arranged marriages. These are people like me who were born in the UK in the 80s. They chose to have arranged marriages. They choose to be mostly housewives, um, to have children and often lots of children and to rear them in a really Islamic way. I'm not like that. I live in California. I went to medical school. I don't wear hijab. I don't have children. Um, And yet we still have this connection and we are still close. What would 12-year-old Seema, how would she have reacted to this book? I think she would have loved this idea of being confronted with these faces 
literally faces of what Muslim women look like. Dark-skinned Black women, light-skinned Southeast Asian women, some wearing hijabs, some wearing burkinis. I didn't even know that was a thing when I was 12. <laughs> yeah. Some wearing mini skirts, some riding Formula One race cars, some riding horses. Like I think it just opens up this world of possibility. And I've loved the feedback that readers give. Like many have bought it for themselves and have then said, "Oh, my ten-year-old son won't let go of it." And I think kids are obviously attracted to Fahmida's incredible paintings. But I think there is this idea that when you open this book, you're opening up a world of possibility in terms of what you can be. As a Muslim woman or a Muslim girl, now you've done so much in your short career. I'll, I'll say, and、um, can you talk to me about how you got to where you are, how you got to the point where you got to this to writing this book? I've been fueled by a lot of no's. People have told me no a lot. So when I was in high school, I was kind of thinking, like, should I go into medicine? And I had a teacher say to me, "You'll never get in. Look, just save yourself the hassle. Don't apply." So I thought, okay, she's right. No one in my family is a doctor. No one really goes to medical school. So no one in my school or my neighborhood goes to medical school. So she's right. I won't apply. And then I went to do my undergrad in biochemistry, and decided, no, I am gonna apply to medical school. Like I want this. And so then I did apply, and I applied to Cambridge and got in there.、Um, And you know, felt like an outsider there too, because so many folks there, so many students there, had been to private school. They already knew each other from all these inner circles.、Um, but persevered through medical school, and then I worked as a doctor in East London, where I had spent a lot of my teenage years, and then got really interested in public health, and moved to the U.S. ten years ago to serve as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Which is the U.S. government squad of disease detectives who are sent out when there's an outbreak of Ebola or Zika or COVID-19 or whatever that might be. I did that for a few years and I absolutely loved it. But something that I noticed whenever I got sent out to a hot zone was it wasn't just a disease that was spreading; it was misinformation and disinformation about disease. So in 2014, I left the CDC, left the Epidemic Intelligence Service, finished up there, and went to journalism school and became a journalist. And my first job as a journalist was as a newspaper reporter at the Dallas Morning News in Texas. And I arrived there.、Um, sorry, I went to journalism school in 2013, graduated in 2014, arrived in the Dallas Morning News as like a freshly minted journalist. Right as Ebola arrived in Dallas,、oh, we had an imported case from West Africa, and then two nurses in the city got infected as well. So then that kind of started my journalism career. And now I have written a few books. I'm director of the Stanford Health Communication Initiative, where I kind of combine these passions of medicine and media. We look at the spread of misinformation and disinformation about health and science around the world. We were doing that way before COVID, so it's interesting to see how it's all come to a head、um, sure. during the pandemic. But that's kind of my career in a nutshell so far. And you've made a name for yourself in the last year,、um, dispelling misinformation on on Twitter and and other places as well, but particularly on Twitter. Yeah, so I think it's really important that people have access to credible and accurate information about health and science in a way that speaks to their fears and anxieties. And one of the things that I study is evidence-based methods for doing that, because it's not enough to just be like, "No, this thing that you've heard from an anti-vaccine group—that's not true. Here's the truth." Often that won't resonate with communities. So I work on both tracking the spread of disease and disinformation about disease, but looking at effective ways to counter. The health hoaxes and medical myths that people are exposed to. So, I actually have a new book coming out called "Viral BS: Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them," which goes through about 50 different myths and truths. Some of them sound like conspiracy theories, but they're actually true. 
and it has a toolkit in there for people to just be really empowered and know how to separate the fact from the fiction when it comes to health. And you're also a poet. I am a poet. I have my my debut poetry collection is coming out in April of 2021. It's called If God is a Virus, and it's about <sighs> Ebola mostly. And it's based on my reporting on the Ebola epidemic from West Africa about five years ago. So I've been working on the poetry book and it, Viral BS, the medical myths book for a long time. Did not think they would come out during a pandemic, but here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just impressed. With, I, I, when do you sleep? <laughs> it's, uh, oh, I, I sleep a lot. I'm like a big believer in at least eight hours sleep a night plus naps. I don't think I could be actually as productive <laughs> as I am without good rest. Fair enough. Yeah. You, you don't happen to have a copy of the book in front of you by any chance, do you? I can get one. I can just move out of where I'm sitting. I just really was taken by your passage on Muslim women write, and I was hoping you could read that. Yeah, sure. Uh, Just tell me what page it is. Yeah, it's 21. All right, ready? Yes. Muslim women write, we have been censored, prosecuted, banned and threatened, our books burned and our paragraphs outlawed. And still, we write. Muslim women write ourselves back into history, correcting history books authored by men who have relegated women to the footnotes or erased us altogether. Muslim women write so that we won't be forgotten, so another sister can find herself in our pages and know that her life, her fights and her triumphs are significant. We write so our stories can be passed on, like chromosomes, to those who will come after, knowing that words spark joy and books ignite revolutions. It's no wonder they have tried to stop us from writing, Sentences can change the world. That was just great. Dr. Sima Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us at American Muslim Project. Thank you so much for talking to me about Muslim Women Are Everything. We have links to Muslim Women Are Everything and all of Dr. Yasmin's other books in our show notes. You can also find her on Twitter. Her handle is at Dr. Yasmin. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-S-M-I-N. Definitely recommend that you follow her. You should also follow Famida Azim, the person who did all the illustrations for the book. You can follow her at F-A-H-M-I-D-A underscore A-Z-I-M. Before we go, we just want to thank everyone who's listened to the first couple episodes. We've been overwhelmed with the response and are really grateful that you are streaming the show and listening. If you have any ideas on who should be on the show or comments about the format or length or anything, please drop us a line. We've heard from some people, some listeners, about ways we can improve the show, and we'll be incorporating those in the upcoming weeks and months. You can email us at feedback at That's feedback at R-I-F-E-L-I-O-N.com. Thanks again. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's episode was produced, written, and researched by Lindsay Gamble, Marconato, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson wrote our theme music. You can find us online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Project.com.